Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, July 14th, we are studying Judges chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. When the Lord delivers his people, what do his people do? They sing. Today's text is the song that Deborah and Barak lead the people in singing to praise the Lord for his victory over his enemies. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. So glad to get to be here with you this morning, Pastor Apple. Pastor Hill, as we get started this morning, we're in the book of Judges, chapter 5. We've just heard the narrative account of what happened with Deborah and Barak, how the Lord delivered his people through them. Now in chapter 5, it seems we're getting a very similar thing, but in a different style. Give us context, background on this text, what's going on here in the book of Judges, the, the form as we see it elsewhere in Scripture. What do we need to know going into chapter 5? So... There's a temptation that when we read Judges 4, like we got to do yesterday, and to hear about how God delivered his people through the work of the prophetess Deborah, and through Barak, and through Jael, uh, the wife of Heber the Kenite, uh, we start to think, oh, so that's over and done, and now we're going to have like a song break. Uh, but that's that's not exactly what's going on here. This is kind of the same account being given a different way. And so we see uh, God doing something wonderful in Judges chapter 4. And now we have the prophetess Deborah and Barak singing this song about the wonderful thing that God uh, has just done for them. This is very much the same as what happened when God brought his people of Israel through the Red Sea in the Exodus. And then immediately Moses and Miriam and the people uh, joined together in song saying what God had just done for them. Uh, but this isn't like some kind of just uh, a, a song that captures what has happened. This is instead, I would say actually part of the narrative. So, after you read Judges 4, you should automatically read Judges 5, and you see the importance um, not only in the actions that have happened, but also in the theology and in who's doing the doing. Uh, this is really helpful because it shows that the work of the defeat of Sisera and the Canaanites was not something done by Deborah or by Barak or by Jael with her, her tent peg and her hammer, but instead this is the action of the Lord, the God of Israel. And this song is uh, throughout pointing that it is the Lord who has done this thing and it is the Lord who has set his people Israel free from the Canaanites. One of the key features that we need to pay attention to is the fact that this is a song. As you said, it is a part of the narrative here, but it is a different type of literature than we've been encountering in the book of Judges for the first four chapters. Now we've got a song. So what do we need to know in terms of Hebrew poetry or Hebrew song that will help us as we read this text today? So when... When you and I might think about a song, we think about songs that have a melody uh, and they have a meter. So there's a certain number of, of syllables in each line and they have uh, some kind of a rhyme scheme usually. You won't notice any of those things in this song of Deborah and Barak. Uh, instead, what we will notice is the way that oftentimes something is said and then using slightly different words, the same thing is said over. So it's kind of like after a line, there's a, a yes and where the same thing gets said in, in a very similar way again. Uh, one example might be uh, as we look ahead towards uh, verse 11, 
Verse 11 says, To the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. And so you have that idea of the the righteous triumphs being repeated, first of the Lord and then of the villagers in Israel. Uh, And so it continues to kind of build on itself and it rolls up and has kind of this, this poetical force of a snowball where it gets bigger and bigger and how the lines pile up on each other. And then in terms of, now it's a song, it's poetry. I like that, the, the poetic effect of a snowball, that, that it's building here. Where, where do we see the, the breaks? I mean, we, in terms of songs that we have today, hymns, for example, have stanzas. Generally, there's a way that you can structure them. What's the structure that we're going to use today to look at Judges chapter 5? Um, so I want to be really careful. Uh, there isn't a strict poetic structure for this particular uh, song. Uh, the in Hebrew, the meter is is unusual, and so it would fit more like my, like plain chant would than like a hymn where uh, you expect the same number of syllables in each line of each stanza. Uh, so we're not going to use a poetic structure to understand this today, but instead use uh, the structure of how it tells the story of God's people uh, going out and of God delivering his people. And so there's, uh, I see this as happening in five parts. Uh, the first part is the people get ready and they go out to battle. Uh, and that's verses two to eight. The second part is kind of a, a description of, I'm sorry, the first part is the setting of, of what's it look like and what's going on around this. And then in verses 9 to 13, it talks about the people going out to war. And then the third part in verses 14 through 18 is kind of the battle roster. Here's the tribes that went out to war. Here's the tribes that didn't go out to war. Then in verses 19 to 23, uh, it talks about what happens in the battle but not in terms of, of generals and battle calls and maneuvers, but in terms of who is fighting against the Canaanites. And the answer there is, it's the Lord Yahweh who is fighting against the Canaanites. And then the fifth part is kind of the aftermath of the battle that focuses on two women, first on Jael, who uh, accomplished the death of Sisera, the enemy Canaanite general, and of Sisera's mother. Uh, and so those are kind of the five parts that this narrative, this poetic narrative breaks itself into. Uh, but that first part is verses uh, two through eight. So five parts that we'll look at it. And again, a setting, the going out to war, the participants, the, the actual battle, and that belongs to the Lord, and that's going to be our key there. And then the aftermath about those five parts generally are what we're going to consider as we go through. So we'll, we'll read that accordingly. Uh, Pastor, uh, one more introductory comment, and it actually goes with verse 1, which I'll go ahead and read. So Judges 5, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. So this is happening that same day that they've won this battle. And it's Deborah and Barak that are singing this and composing this. Now, particularly for Deborah, given what we know about it, why is it important that she is a composer of this song? So Deborah is a prophetess over the people of Israel. We're not exactly sure how it came to be that she became prophetess and judge, but we know that she is the one who was judging God's people during this time. And the, the fact that the judge herself is involved in the composing and singing of this song uh, says that this is indeed God's word. This isn't just um, wonderful, poetic song expressions based on what just happened. This is what God wants his people to know about this battle and about its completion. It has the, the authority of the judge of Israel rolled up behind it. So with that introduction, let's jump right into this song. We are in Judges chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 2 through 8 to get us started the setting of this battle. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. 
I will make melody to the Lord, to the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? All right, we'll pause there. That was verses 2 through 8 of Judges chapter 5. And Pastor Earl, you, you said this is the setting here that we've got in this section of the song. Again, taking the song as a narrative rather than seeing that poetic structure with meter and rhyme, but but taking in order the narrative. Here's the introduction, the setting of this song. And even, even before you really get into the setting of the song, I suppose, verses 2 and 3 seem to be an introduction, a general thanksgiving and call for the people to to praise. Take us into some of these features. So especially in verse two, it starts out with um, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Uh, but there we have kind of our poetic snowball kicking off, right? So it's the leaders who get up to lead, but also the people followed or offered themselves willingly going along. This isn't just an act of the leaders of Israel, nor is it just an act of the people. This is an act of the leaders and the people together. And so kings, listen up. Princes, hear. Uh, we, we are singing here to the Lord, to Yahweh. And Deborah and Barak say, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, this battle and this war and the whole book of Judges is about how the people of Israel are living in the middle of this land of Canaan. The Canaanites worshipped the sun and the stars and all kinds of various false gods. But Barak and Deborah are clear who they are worshipping, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so there is no question in the singer's mind of this is who the center of this passage is. The center here is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in that sense, then, this song functions as a confession of faith to these peoples around them. Deborah and Barak and the people joining in this praise make it very clear we are singing to the one true God, to Yahweh, the one who has truly won this battle. A, a good a good thing for any song of praise to do is to confess very clearly who it is that we are praising. We are praising the Lord. And and even as then the song continues, I, I think that that's a helpful way of thinking about this as this snowball gets going. Barak, Deborah, as they continue this praise, they they start comparing, it sounds like, what the Lord has accomplished in their time with what the Lord has accomplished previously in history. What is verses four and five, when it talks about Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, it talks about Sinai trembling as well. What are, what's the song, what's the poetic snowball doing right there? So when you have this image of the heavens dropped and the clouds dropped water, um, and then the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, as you start to think about the heavens dropping into place, as you think about uh, rain falling from the sky, it's easy to imagine the book of Genesis, where it starts with God putting uh, the heavens in their place, where God sends water in the flood in the days of Noah, and when the mountains trembled, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, and to Mount Sinai, and there is Mount Sinai was trembling and quaking before them. In all of that, we see the same action of the Lord who created, the Lord who judged in the days of Noah, the Lord who brought out the people from the land of Egypt and brought them to his presence at Mount Sinai. This is the work of the same Lord working similar deliverance, his deliverance for them. Right. The, the same Lord that did these things is now doing these things for us in this time. So there's there's the setting. And, and then 
Pastor Ill, as, as the text continues, as the, the snowball continues, uh, we get a little more, I think it sounds like present tense. This is what it was like prior to the battle. We find out, we hear some names that we've heard previously in the book of Judges. I know you're pretty excited to tell us a little bit about Shamgar again. Well, the, and there's not a whole lot to get to say about Shamgar. <laughs> of the seven judges, uh, there's a few that we we kind of lose track of. Uh, one is Shamgar, probably the other is Othniel, who we don't hear very much about. Uh, but Shamgar killed 600 people with uh, with an ox goad, if I'm remembering correctly. And that happened back in Judges 331. And the judge Shamgar gets an entire verse uh, in scripture that describe what he does as one of the seven judges of Israel. Uh, when that happened, the context that was happening around Shamgar, if you'll remember, is that the north and south highways that connected the tribes of Israel in the north with the tribes of Israel in the south were cut off. And Shamgar fought against the Philistines and basically opened up the highways again. But God's people were still under oppression in the days that came after Shamgar. And the Canaanites were living in the lowlands of the south country um, around Jerusalem and needed to be driven out. And that is when uh, Deborah rose up, as it says here, as a mother in Israel. Uh, the villagers had stopped uh, gathering together. Uh, the travelers couldn't go on the highways. Uh, another way of translating that word travelers is actually the, the caravans or the, uh, the, the trade convoys that would go from north and south. They weren't traveling anymore because of the Philistines who were robbing all of the, uh, the merchant traffic. And so Shamgar opened up the highways, but Deborah was serving as a mother in Israel, waiting for the day when God would come and deliver his people. So this was not, prior to Deborah and Barak, this was not a particularly happy time for the people of Israel, if I can put it mildly. Certainly not. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I think it's something that, that Shamgar does get this mention here, that even, even with what Shamgar had done back there in Judges 331, and certainly he did a, a very good thing, killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad, saving Israel. But, but even then you see how, I guess my, my point is that this is a difficult time overall for Israel, in that even when a judge arises and things get better, faithfulness does begin to return, it's still it's still difficult time. And so that even when Shamgar did what he did, still Deborah was needed to come along and to do what she did. And I think verse 8 is, is particularly part of where this song adds some theology to what we've seen so far in Judges. There's this matter of new gods, and that's what that's when war arose, and that's when there were no weapons to be found. It, it, it seems that that Deborah and Barak in composing this song are are identifying the difficulties that Israel was facing with the matter of their idolatry. What do you think, Pastor Hill? I I think that's spot on. Where uh, these new gods are chosen, you have the gods of the Canaanites, uh, and they tended to worship especially uh, celestial bodies like the sun and the stars. And we're going to see the sun and the stars come back in in this song uh, as it's kind of thrown in the face of the Canaanites. You thought that the sun and the stars were going to help you? God used the sun and the stars against you. Um. And ultimately, it's not in the gods that are chosen or in the spear or the, uh, or the shield that deliverance is given. Deliverance is given by the Lord who works in his own way. When you expect a battle scene, you don't expect kind of a, kind of a housewife with a tent peg and a hammer to be the hero of the day. But that's what God uses here. And... God continues to work for his people in his own way. God doesn't need spears and shields. He'll use them when he wants to, but God works for his people in his own way, not necessarily in the way that we would choose. So new gods are chosen and war is in the gates. There might not be a lot of, of shields or spears, but the Lord is in the presence of his people and he has come to deliver them. 
Mm, right. And that that's the key throughout this whole song. And it, it was already there in verses four and five, and it's definitely going to come back later when we get to the, the description of the battle itself. But this this song makes it clear that the battle belongs to the Lord. He's the one who does the fighting for his people. And, and that's what matters more than shields or spears or, or tent pegs even, is that the Lord is the one who does the fighting. So there's the setting, verses 2 through 8. Let's move on on this side of the break to verses 9 through 13, which, Pastor L, you're going to say this is where the people actually start to go out to war. So Judges 5, verses 9 through 13. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. All right, that's the second section as we're considering it today. Judges 5, verses 9 through 13. Pastor Il, you're you're calling this the people going out to war. What do we see in this section? So here we see... Uh, in verse 9, we start with another one of these bless the Lord statements, where we can see that it is the Lord who is doing these things. And in verse 10, you have another one of these poetic statements of, this is everybody. So, uh, tell of it, or hey, you guys who ride on the white donkeys and who have uh, rich carpets as donkey saddles. And you other folks who walk by the way. So, you rich and you poor together, tell the story. Uh, talk together about how God has delivered you today as he brought you together. And as you repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord and of his villagers. And so you all marched down and you might wonder about the, the idea of marching down. Uh, this isn't a, um, a directional thing. Like sometimes you might say, if I were traveling here from Illinois, I would travel down to Texas and go South. But the truth is that, uh, here in Israel, it's not an idea of going uh, to the south, but rather from coming off of the hills and off of the mountains down into the lowlands that the Canaanites had occupied. And so they were coming down into the flatlands. Um, and we don't see the other side of what's happening among the Canaanites here. But chapter four talks about how Sisera is really a captain of chariots. And he has chariots that would be the, the battle tanks of the time but they wouldn't work up in the hill country. This battle happening in the lowlands shows that it is the Lord who is going to fight against Sisera and against his chariots. And he stirs up Deborah and Barak and says, lead the people. And so they marched down, the, that noble remnant, and the people of the Lord marched down against the mighty. And so we might be tempted to look at this as uh, the innocent Israelites going down to the slaughter or something like that. But because the Lord goes with them, they're not going down to the slaughter. They're not going down to a battle that they will lose or to a battle where uh, they have any, any reason to fear. Instead, because the Lord is with them, he has come and he will deliver them. I think that, that you see that particularly in verse 12. Where, where the text says, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song, and then arise, Barak, lead away your captives. Now, I mean, the, the call is not for Deborah to awake and, and pull out her sword or her bow and arrow. The call is not for Barak to mount his horse and ride into battle. Rather, the call is for Deborah to start singing, <laughs> and the call is for Barak to lead away the captives. Well, how is it that, that Deborah can start singing, and how is it that Barak can start leading away captives before the battle has even begun? It's precisely what you're getting at, Pastor Ill, that this battle actually belongs to the Lord. And so when the people of Israel go to that battle at his command, 
they go to certain victory and they can start singing and, and preparing to lead away the captives even before the battle has begun. Pastor, we got just about a, a minute to wrap this up on this side of the break. Great. Um, so we see that this is the Lord's battle and this is where the Lord does his work for his people. And the work of Deborah and Barak is, like you say, uh, for Deborah to serve as a judge, for Barak to serve as a leader, but it's not for them to, to serve as, as military conquerors. The Lord has that under control. Uh, Deborah and Barak are to stand by and declare the word of the Lord, to observe what the Lord is doing for his people, and to bear faithful witness to God's action for his people. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at the song of Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 14th, and we are studying Judges chapter 5, verses 1 through 31, the song of Deborah and Barak. We've got Pastor Peter Ill as our guest. He serves as the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor L, prior to the break, we looked at the first two sections of this song, the setting that is given. It was a very difficult time for the people of Israel, to say the least, until the Lord brought about Deborah and Barak to deliver his people. But this is the Lord's doing in delivering his people. So we've we've seen the setting. We've seen going out to battle, and now we're going to see who's involved. Deborah's going to give us some information as to which tribes participated and which tribes didn't. So we are in Judges chapter 5. We're going to read verses 14 through 18 next. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of the heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. All right, that's verses 14 through 18 here in Judges chapter 5. So, Pastor L, we've, we've got two things basically happening here. Some tribes came when Deborah called, some didn't. Let's talk about those that came first. So the tribes that are listed as coming are Ephraim, uh, and that's one of the geographically largest of the tribes, um, kind of off to the northeast part of, of the Promised Land. Uh, and then Benjamin from the south, and Manasseh, who was up further north, close to Ephraim. Uh, and even though Manasseh isn't labeled by name, it labels uh, Macar or Makar. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the best pronunciation for that. Uh, but that's a leading tribe of Manasseh, and so they came down to join the battle. Uh, and Zebulun and Naft. Uh, sorry, Zebulun and. Uh, yeah, I'm all tongue-tied now. Zebulun and Issachar came and joined the battle as well. Um, but as they all came, this kind of gets us thinking about uh, the scope of judges. And when we think about some of the other judges, they fought, uh, they served in really local or regional ways. Deborah is one of the the judges that has representation from all over the place throughout Israel. 
uh, coming to her aid when she called the people for battle uh, along with Beric. And so the fact that there's five tribes with her is, uh, well, it's five more tribes and came with Shamgar. Shamgar, uh, he had an ox goad. Deborah has five tribes of the people of Israel uh, gathering to her for this battle. One of, uh, well, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Pastor Al. Keep going. I, I was going to say that on the other hand, um, there were five tribes that didn't come. But you might have had a question before that. Well, I was I was just going to make the comment that, and I think you were bringing this out, is that one of the maybe misconceptions that we have about the Book of Judges is that we tend to view Israel as a whole, and certainly they are one nation; they are brothers. But in terms of the way that they act at this point in history, they are acting very tribally, if we can say it that way. They, they're not always very united in the way that they act. And in the book of Judges, when we see a judge acting, I think, I know I do this in my own mind, I tend to think of them acting for the whole land of Israel. But that's generally not the case. Some of these judges actually overlap in, in time because they're acting at the same time in different parts of the land. And this little section here in Judges 5, where Deborah is listing those who did participate and those who didn't, is just a nice reminder of that reality and helps us keep a better picture in our minds of, of what's happening in the book of Judges, I think. I was just going to reiterate that. So we've got the tribes that participated. And then we've, and generally speaking, the tribes that participated are, are pretty well geographically, those are the ones you would expect to participate. Now you've got the tribes that didn't come when they were called. Geographically, again, I think we would expect them, well, that kind of makes sense, but I think Deborah makes fun of them a little bit. Yeah, she gets she gets kind of snarky. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, as she picks up in verse uh, 15, uh, among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Uh, and you can, uh, and then she repeats among the clans of Reuben, there was a great searchings of heart. Uh, and it talks about then how Gilead, which is another name for the tribe of Gad, uh, stayed across the Jordan river where their allotment of land was. And Dan, who was, uh, off to the, uh, to the West, I believe, uh, he was with the ships and Asher was by their, their ports or their landings. And they were uh, not responding to this. Uh, they didn't come to the aid of their brothers. And Deborah, Deborah gets a little bit snarky about it. Um, but also, I think it's helpful to notice that there are uh, tribes here that are not listed, um, especially the tribes of Judah and of Simeon. They don't get mentioned. And when we see that they, they drop out and they're not mentioned, we start to think, oh, wait a minute, uh, where, where were they and what were they up to? And the truth is, they're not mentioned. We don't know. Uh, it does seem a little odd to us because we hear so often about Judah who became, uh, that's the, the tribe where the city of Jerusalem was located. And that is the tribe that Jesus himself was descended from. We would expect to hear more about Judah, but we don't. Here, God works deliverance for his people through, especially Zebulun uh, and Naphtali. These are some of the, uh, the tribes that later in the Old Testament almost uh, fell into non-existence, uh, even before they were uh, carried away into exile, where we say, well, gee, I don't remember hearing a whole lot about them. Uh, we hear about them in the uh, in the prophet Isaiah from time to time that even out of these little tribes there will be um, a great resurgence. But here in the days of Deborah, this is the kind of the heyday of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Right, I mean Zebulun and Naphtali; those are the those are the two tribes that are mentioned in the book of Isaiah, which then gets quoted in the book of Matthew when Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. That's the way of the sea up there in, up, oh, see, I used up in, in the north, Galilee of the Gentiles. Yeah, this is their heyday. Later, their, their real 
glory will be that that's where Jesus starts his ministry, as we see there in Matthew chapter chapter four. And and yeah, I mean, this it really it just it's maybe the kind of thing when you read about what Deborah says about Reuben particularly, it, you you hear it and you're like that's in the Bible. That that Deborah kind of was was mocking. You guys are just sitting there twiddling your thumbs, whistling, listening for the for the sheep, and and we're out here going to battle. Come on, help help us out. And and I think I mean you see you see a bit here the the division that's evident right now in Israel. That as the narrative of the Old Testament moves forward, it, you don't really see the tribes coming together fully until you get to King David. And and King Solomon, and then of course everything falls apart after that. Uh, but but it's just it's just I think it's it's interesting to see here, and and to listen to the way that that Deborah calls on them. Why why didn't you why didn't you help us? Um, and yet the Lord still is faithful to deliver His people, which is the the point of the song. Even if one tribe had responded, this was the Lord's battle to win. So. Any more comments on that section, Pastor L? Before we move forward, I don't think so. Okay, all right. I didn't want to leave you leave anything out. So we're now in verse nineteen of Judges chapter five. So this is going to be the battle itself. The kings came; they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Morose, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. All right, so this is, Pastor Ill, that's verses 19 through 23 in Judges 5. This is the battle itself. And, and we've heard the battle described already to an extent in Judges chapter four. It, maybe, maybe think. T- tell me what you think of this. Judges chapter four is the earthly perspective of the battle. Now in Judges chapter five, we're seeing a more heavenly perspective of the battle. What do you think? I, I think that's exactly right. Um, as it talks about uh, the kings, they come and they fought, and it gives the kind of the location. But then in verse twenty, it says, "From heaven, the stars fought. From their course, they fought against Sisera." Now, remember that Sisera is a general in the Canaanite army, and the Canaanites worship the stars and the sun. And so I I think you can see a little more snark here that the stars are fighting against the Canaanites. And then it goes on to talk about that the torrent Kishon. Uh, That's another way of talking about the Kishon River uh, sweeping them away. Um, and once again, you hear kind of that poetic snowball, right? Uh, in verse 21, the torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. That You can just kind of hear it uh, where those words and expressions are piling up on each other. And at that point, from this heavenly perspective, the battle is won. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds away. There goes the retreat. Uh, the chariots and the horsemen of Canaan, they are in retreat because the Lord fights for his people. Uh, but then all of a sudden the section takes a turn. Uh, you have the angel of the Lord speaking and saying, curse Moroz. Uh, Moroz was a tribe that should have cut off the retreat, but the people of Moroz didn't cut off the retreat. They didn't come to the help of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord calls for them to be cursed. Uh, it's not exactly what you would expect at the end of a great uh, description of battle of all of a sudden, uh, let's curse the ones who didn't come to help. But that is exactly what happens here in verse 23. It's one of those unexpected things to us, I think. We're not used to, in a hymn of praise, we're not used to hearing this talk about the enemies in such strong fashion. For I mean, to go back to what, what Deborah said about Reuben and the tribes that didn't help, and, and now here in Moroz and what we're going to read later about uh, Sisera's mother, the way, that, the way that we speak about the defeat of the enemies is a bit stronger than we're used to i'm not i'm maybe not be saying that what that well we we tend to focus on this is what the lord has done for us and at least in our 
modern way of thinking, we don't always have the same focus as the scriptures do on what the Lord did to his, his enemies. I, you, you brought up at the very beginning, Exodus 14 and 15, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then Moses and Miriam's song afterwards. And a lot of that language in Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord blows from his nostrils. He drowns his enemies, very graphic ways of speaking about the judgment and wrath he brings upon his enemies. And here as well, the way that the Lord speaks against his enemies, it, it's just very, it's not something that that we speak a lot today, I think, and maybe it's something that we could recover. Uh, what do you think, Pastor Hill? I, I think that it's something that is really foreign in our ears. And as the church speaks, I think it's really, really foreign uh, in the world in which we live. Uh, we don't talk about conquest this often. Um, if, if we talked about you know, youth sports, the way that uh, the Lord speaks about victory in battle, uh, that would be poor sportsmanship indeed. But the Lord isn't worried about sportsmanship. The Lord is concerned that he declares that he is the one who conquers and he is the one who rules over all things. And there will be no mistake among the Canaanites nor among the Egyptians about who is in charge and who fights for the people of Israel. Um, and, well, then that's that's what we need is for the Lord to fight for us. And if we if we completely lose this sort of language, then then we miss that. Then the Lord's not fighting against real enemies. He's just sort of fighting generically. We we need to know what the Lord is doing against our specific enemies. And of course, our specific enemies are not the Canaanites. Well, our specific enemies are, are the false gods, of, of which the Canaanites had a picture of those false gods, false gods that still exist. We need the Lord to defeat those and to, to defeat them soundly, lest we we be lost in their clutches forever. Sorry, I think I interrupted you, Pastor Hill. Not at all. I was going to say that we chiefly see the Lord going to battle for us, not in this battle of Deborah and Barak and Jael, but especially the battle of Christ crucified. When he comes, he is the one who fights for us in the midst of the darkness falling upon the earth. Um, you can almost hear some of that. The stars were there um, in the darkness. Uh, going on. And the earth trembled and quaked. A lot of the things that were happening here uh, in the song of Deborah and Barak are also seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus puts the enemies of sin, death, and the devil on retreat because he has fought for his people. Uh, he who fought against the Egyptians, he who fought against the Canaanites, fights against all sin and puts it to flight and he has set his people free from every kind of occupation indeed. Now the Lord has fought for his people, not with a tent peg, but with nails that held him to a cross. Yeah, the, the heavenly picture of this war that we've got in this section is, is a reminder that this is the Lord's battle, and it is pointing forward to that great day of the Lord when he won that ultimate victory for his people through his death on the cross. Let's go ahead then and finish this song out here in Judges chapter 5. We're going to take verse 24 through the end. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends... Be like the sun as he rises in his might. 
and the land had rest for 40 years. That's the conclusion of our text today. That was Judges 5, verses 24 through 31. So, Pastor Ellen, our five-part breakdown of this song, this is the last part. This is the aftermath of the battle. In verses 22 and 23, we saw the retreat of the battle. We saw Moroz particularly refuse to do anything to stop this retreat. But into that void, the Lord sends the woman Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Take us into this text. Uh, so this might be a good time to say, if you if you missed yesterday's show on Judges 4, uh, you might want to go to kfuo.org and check out the archives of yesterday's show to hear to hear the other version of it uh, that's a little more a little more nuts and bolts but as it mentions here that Jael is the wife of Heber the Kenite uh, they lived up in the hill country and Sisera got out and was going on foot and he thought that the Kenites would be on his side and so he, when he got to this Kenite uh, tent, he went inside and asked if uh, he could lie down under one of the rugs uh, and be covered up. Uh, she gave him some milk to drink and he fell asleep. And so when he was asleep, Jael uh, took a tent peg and a hammer and she, she nailed him to the floor, uh, running the tent peg uh, through the temple of his head um, and, and killing him dead. Uh, and the this poetic snowball is really, uh, really getting big at this point where you hear in verses 26 and 27, she struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. And you can just kind of feel that, that just big down motion in these words as it describes the victory that was won, not even the general was exempt from the defeat. He was struck dead at the hands of a woman, a woman he thought he could trust, and she literally nailed him to the floor. But then the scene shifts suddenly from this tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, back to the land of Canaan, and we now see Sisera's mother, but we know something that she doesn't know. What we know is he's not coming home. There he sank, he fell, he was dead. And she wonders, what, what's taking so long? Um, we hear the word here, why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Tarry uh, is another word for wait. And she says, oh, they're just taking extra time to divide the spoils of war. Um, and, and then it talks about a womb or two for every man. Uh, and this has really given me some pause in my own preparations for, uh, for this uh, study today. To think about how the Canaanites thought of, of women um, other translations will talk about a woman or two, or a wife or two, or a girl or two. But here, the value of a woman for the Canaanites is that she has a womb. Uh, this is something that definitely doesn't fit with our understanding of God's creation of men and women today. But it is how the Canaanites thought of things. And that every man was going to bring home a new wife or two out of this battle was something that she thought. All of her expectations were that her son Sisera would come back with spoils of war to, uh, to support the nation of Canaan. But what we know from the previous verses is Sisera wasn't coming back. There were no spoils of war for the people of Canaan. Instead, they were undone. They were uh, struck down. There was no hope for them, no comfort for them. And that's where this song ends in verse 31. Uh, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. In other words, anybody who opposes you, Yahweh, is undone. There is no opposition that can stand up against you. But then for the Canaanites who worshipped the sun, there's one more little snarky piece here. But your friends, Yahweh's friends, be like the sun as he rises in his might. Where the Canaanites had worshipped the sun, here it is the Lord who brings his light on his people. It is the Lord who fights for them. It is the Lord who brings rest and peace for his people. 
it talks at the conclusion here that the land has rest for 40 years. But this whole encounter of the Canaanites and the people of Israel ultimately is a, a prophecy of a greater battle to come. The battle of Christ on the cross, who fights for his people, for the one who is the light of the world, for the one who comes and says, I have come that you will have peace and have it abundantly. And the peace and the rest that he brings doesn't last for 40 years. It lasts forever. And all of this is a prophecy of the work that Jesus will do for his people. Man, Pastor L, I was going to start reflecting a little bit on something else, but you always just such, do such a nice job of of tying things to Christ crucified and risen for us. That was that was wonderful. One one, and just because we got about two minutes here, so just the again because it stands out. It's not the way that we usually talk. This talk of the mother of Sisera and the way that she's expecting her son to come home, and then the way that she tries to comfort herself in the meantime, with knowledge that we as the reader of Judges know is false. It's just a terribly tragic thing to, to see someone in that unbelief clinging to the only hope that they can come up with, and yet all the while that, that hope is completely false. It has no grounds. And, and what I see there is just the, the complete tragedy of unbelief. And, and yet, what do those who know the Lord, what do they have? They have real hope, not just some sort of pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking, but something real to cling to. Jesus Christ crucified and risen for them. That is a knowledge that will never fail and never perish and is true in the face of, of expectations that aren't met. That's always true. And so in the, in the face of, of such a, a tragic thing as, as what is described here for the mother of Sisera, Christians have that, that real hope, that real expectation of what is true in Christ crucified and risen for them. Pastor Earl, any further thoughts before we close out this morning? Um, as you were reflecting on the mother of Sisera, it, it called me back a little bit to verse 8, where it talks about also Deborah serving as a mother for Israel. Uh, and so you have the mother of righteousness, if you will, um, the prophetess who serves as judge over Israel over against the mother of Sisera here. Uh, Deborah has hope in the Lord, where Sisera's mother has hope in Sisera. And having hope in Sisera doesn't help. But having hope in Yahweh, that is where true hope, true peace, and true rest is found. Pastor Peter Ill is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest as always. Oh, it's been my pleasure. God's blessings to you and to all our listeners. And I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.